Hi everybody and welcome back to the Dark History Podcast. Hope everybody is well. I'm Rob, your host as always. In the mid-1840s, an unwanted visitor came to the Irish shores. This visitor brought the country to its knees and their overlords did absolutely nothing to help. The visitor caused so many people to die and even more to leave. A visitor which would bring one of the worst famines of the 19th century and change the destinies of London and Dublin alike. Today, in episode 14, we will talk about Pythopathora infestans, or in English, the blight, and how it wiped out so many people off the Irish census. So without further ado, sit back, relax, for more dark history. As 1845 dawned on an island that had been a part of the United Kingdom for over four decades, you would be forgiven to believe that everything was rosy in the Union. Unfortunately, relationships couldn't have been more sour. On paper, the British and the Irish were one country, but the reality was that London treated Ireland less as an equal, and more as an extension of its colonies. The Empire would lavish wealth on Great Britain, but Ireland, well, it had to put up with biting poverty, as its citizens gained none of the magnificent Empire's wealth. In this era, poverty really did bite hard. Of the some 8.2 million inhabitants of Ireland, only slightly over a million lived in towns and cities. The rest were right in the more rural surroundings, toiling in the fields to feed the Empire. Now, you would think these people would own a decent living growing food to feed the empire, but these people were far from wealthy. These people belonged to the grimmest social class bracket, the courtiers. Irish society sort of went like this. The rich Brits that pranced around the place were at the top of the social pyramid, followed by the Protestant Irish, then slightly wealthier Catholics just underneath them. And under all this opulence were the courtiers, the class that all of the above shit on from a great height. These poor people lived in literal mud huts, on land owned by landowners or local farmers. These landowners were generally Protestants of Anglo-Irish descent installed by Cromwell after his conquest of Ireland in 1649, and these people owned 90% of the Irish farming land. In return for the landowners giving the courtiers a place to live, the courtier would have to work 200 days a year for the landowner, with the other 165 days being reserved for the courtier's own crops, which was pretty fair in my eyes. Now don't get me wrong, these people did live in abject poverty, even by Victorian standards, but you couldn't tell this by looking at them. These peasants were some of the most sturdiest, well-fed peasants in the whole of Europe, So what was their secret? The humble potato. When the potato arrived in Europe from South America in 1567, the Spanish unwittingly changed the course of history. When this easily grown plant arrived in Ireland in 1586, the peasants could grow six tonnes of food per year on just one acre of land, even with the bitter Irish weather. Better still, this crop would give the peasants all of the nutrients they needed. By the eve of the famine, 
potato had become the dominant food of a third of the population, most of that being courtiers. And some of these courtiers would grow up eating nothing but potatoes. Honestly, you would believe the potato was the only crop the Irish grew. But that would be false. Ireland also grew corn, but this corn was exported to Britain to feed the working class poor. And quite simply, the poor Irish families couldn't afford it. So in 1845, what do you have? A system precariously held up by one food source. And this one food source grown in one single variety. The watery, high-yield lump of potato. Well, I'll tell you what you have. You have a recipe for disaster. Yes, the potato did play a massive part in the famine. But there were other factors that made it more catastrophic, like the divisions in Ireland at the time. In the East, Ulster and Dublin saw relatively little poverty. It had high literacy rates, and the people were well versed in English as well as Irish Gaelic. In contrast, the West had parishes with over two-thirds of people that were courtiers. The people spoke only Gaelic, and literacy levels were as low as 15%. So why have I taken a minute out of your time to talk about potatoes? Why have I explained the social economic state of Ireland in 1845? Well, when the potato eventually failed, and that one life source was taken, these poor illiterate people bore the brunt of the devastating consequences. It was 1843 when reports began to surface on America's eastern seaboard of a new blight. A blight that took healthy potatoes and changed them into foul-smelling sludge. And the culprit? Well, that was a fungus-like water mould known as Pythopathora infestans. Not that anybody knew that by then. All the people knew was the blight was ripping its way through the Great Lakes into Canada's maritime provinces and across the Great Atlantic Ocean to Europe. In Europe, the blight had taken root no pun intended, in Belgium. It would quickly spread, and by mid-August 1845, the Garden Chronicles reported that potato crops were failing on the Isle of Wight, on England's southern coast. Over the next couple of months, the editor, Dr John Lidley, a botanist, would track the blight spreading across England, Wales and Scotland. But its arrival in Ireland in September of 1845 made Lidley the most afraid. Unfortunately, Lidley was alone in his troubles. The Irish press had reported that in 1845 they had had a bumper potato harvest, despite the terribly wet Irish summer. Turns out, this terribly wet Irish summer was the catalyst for the blight to take hold in Ireland. By late September 1845, the mould was everywhere. In 1845, Westminster was controlled by a very charismatic Prime Minister, Sir Robert Peel. Sorry, time for Rob's random interruption of the episode. Sir Robert Peel set up the very first Metropolitan Police Force in Britain. Here in Britain we call policemen Bobbies, after Robert Peel, Bobby being short for Robert. Right, I'm done, sorry. Anyway, Sir Robert Peel was the former Chief Secretary of Ireland, and Peel had a very odd view on Ireland. On one hand, Peel knew Ireland like the back of his hand, on the other he was prone to the anti-Irish prejudices that were common in the era. So what would any bigoted political leader who couldn't decide on if he loved or hated the Irish do? 
Yep, that's right. He made unkind and glib remarks about the Irish, exaggerating their problems to get more money, but then asked for daily updates on the most affected areas. See, it was an odd mix. I think somebody was a closet Irishman myself. It wasn't until 1845 that the British government actually started to do something. This is when the Daily Report began to paint a grim picture and Peel had to act at first. He would send a small scientific task force under the watchful eye of Dr John Lidley to investigate the cause. When the task force reported back, the results were bone chilling. Not because Lidley and his team had found the blight. No, it was because of what they had seen and what the scientific data they had collected was telling them. Lidley reported that 80% of the harvest would fail. We know now that that was a massive overshoot for the first year, because it was more like 40%. Nevertheless, you can tell why he was terrified. The devastation that was coming at 40% was apocalyptic, and 80% and higher, which for some of the years it did reach, well that was truly biblical. These reports would shake Peel into action, and by Halloween, a relief committee was organised. The committee arrived in Ireland by mid-November with plans to help. The strange thing was, Peel told only a select few of people what these plans were. Not even the Irish knew. When a group of Irish delegates arrived in London to beg for the immediate suspension of food exports, he basically brushed them off. These people, dejected, had to return to Ireland believing the government were willing to let scores of Irish perish. Little bit of rhyming. Now, abandoning the Irish can be said for many characters in this story. But for Peel, it can't. Secretly, Peel was working on a plan to bulk buy hundreds of thousands of tonnes of maize from North America. So why was Peel so candid about the plan? Well, he didn't want to discourage private relief efforts. And when I say a few people knew about this plan, not even members of his own cabinet knew about it. The plan was quite a good plan, really. The first part of it was to ship Indian corn, which is what it was called back then, to depots in Ireland and distribute it in the run-up to the 1846 harvest to subsidise the loss of the potato. The second and more widely known part was the use of public works which would see extra money in the pockets of the people to buy said food. So by January of 1846, those too poor to afford the ever-inflating price of food could work on the government-funded projects for money. This money could be used to buy the corn. Peel's greatest part of the plan involved something called the Corn Laws. Now, to cut a long story short, the Corn Laws were enacted in 1815, and they were enacted to enable Britain to slap massive tariffs on foreign grain. Peel, who was a member of the Conservative Party, massively supported the Corn Laws, but Peel had recently converted to free trade ideas, and he was eager to try these out with the famine. The free trade ideas would allow new avenues of food importation to Ireland, pushing down the inflation on food prices and avoiding mass Irish starvation. The problem with this was the Corn Laws were massively polarising in British politics at the time. A little like Brexit was in the more modern times. Yes, Peel won the fight to scrap tariffs, but it was to the detriment of his prime ministerial reign. Peel would lose his standing, ushering in a new government which would combine a toxic laissez-faire ideology and an anti-Irish sentiment to an already overwhelming famine. 
Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. As Peel was in Britain gambling everything in the Corn Law plan, over in Ireland, the first relief efforts were getting underway. Everyone has heard about Britain's notorious role in the famine, but for those first few months in 1846, their role was surprisingly different. I know making suffering people do extra work for money to buy food sounds far from the ideal relief plan, and yes, there were teething problems with delays, but surprisingly, it did the job. When Peel was in charge, almost nobody died. Unfortunately, this didn't last. All because of one man. Charles Trevelyan. I don't know if the listeners heard that disturbance. That was the echoes of millions of Irish people shouting bastard at the mention of his name. Trevelyan and his boss Charles Wood are the great villains in our story, my dear listeners. These men are our Dr. Evil and Mini-Me. I may be showing my age with that reference. Anyway, these men were hell-bent on saving the British state as much money as possible, even when doing so would increase suffering. Trevelyan would forbid relief committees from distributing free food to the starving until the local workhouses were full. When that happened, the starving people that were left had to have a damn good reason for not having a job. Now, this approach was unethical at best, and at worst it was downright nasty, but it wasn't deadly. That came along with Trevelyan's boss. On June 25th, 1846, Sir Robert Peel did the impossible. He repealed the Corn Laws and got his free trade era up and running, but this caused a metaphorical civil war within his own party and the divisions saw Sir Robert Peel resign, and in came the Whig government of Sir John Russell. His party believed in two things. Firstly, the market could solve everything. And secondly, anything happening to the Irish was God's divine will. I love how some awful God-fearing people use that platitude to make them feel better about the horrendous things they're doing. But no exaggeration here. Charles Trevelyan's boss at the Treasury... Charles Woods literally believed the famine was the work of a deity. When summer of 1846 rolled around, the potato harvest was reported to have a 100% failure. Wood, never the man to look a gift horse in the mouth, believed the relief commissions weren't working and scrapped the whole operation. This would allow Trevelyan to write his own policies. First up was the Labour Rate Act, which basically looked at the public works projects and wondered why so much taxpayers' money was going to these starving people. What did he do? Well, wages were slashed, and certain conditions had to be met before wages were paid. This was good for the young and relatively fair, but bad for the old or weak, who couldn't hit these targets. To combine this, projects could be several hours' walk in miserable weather. This meant some people had to choose, walk, or join the workhouses. 
These workhouses were rife with disease that would kill scores of people. Unfortunately, that was the choice people had to make. Die working or die working in the workhouses. What was worse, the slash wages weren't even keeping up with the spiralling food costs. Yet the British government continued to export Irish corn, causing massive spikes in deaths and emigrations. By the spring of 1847, the Treasury finally did one right thing, introducing soup kitchens. Now if you're a person who believes that this famine could or should be labelled as a genocide, the soup kitchens may surprise you. These kitchens served meals to some 3 million people during the bleakest parts of the famine. These meals were the very burrest of the bare minimum, what a person needs just to survive. But people did stay alive, and death rates plummeted. You see, the very definition of a genocide is to kill with intent. By Britain providing soup kitchens, maybe gives evidence to support that the intent wasn't there. Nevertheless, whether it be murder or neglect, people died. The thing that is truly terrible is the summer of 1847 the harvest failed again, leaving more people reliant on soup kitchens. By now, the pro-market Whig government was growing restless. Their direct involvement in helping the Irish was seen as sin, and in the autumn of 1847, the soup kitchens were discontinued. This cut off three million people's last source of food and inevitably was sentenced them to death. The following years saw the pastoral Irish countryside decay into a hellscape. Living skeletons haunted the scenery. Gaunt and grey, their features sunken into their faces, desperate for salvation that never came. Throughout the land of Ireland, whole families would perish. Out of sight, their bodies would be left to the dogs. On the roads, masses of people migrated to the ports, desperate to make it onto ships, beginning mass exoduses to America and Australia. These journeys in themselves full of danger. Coffin ships, as they were known, were infested with diseases, such as cholera, typhus, and dysentery, not to mention the shipwrecks in storms, starvation and dehydration, but these were the lengths people would go to, to leave the horrors behind them. Between 1845 and 1855, 2.1 million people emigrated, that is a quarter of the entire population of Ireland, of that 2.1 million, 80% went to America. Back in Ireland, estimates put the death toll at a million dead although exact numbers are impossible to come by. But very few actually died of starvation. Instead, many lives were claimed by disease. Diseases related to malnutrition, such as scurvy, polygra, and something called starvation dysentery, brought on by the consumption of infected potatoes, killed a lot of people. However, typhus killed a majority. Due to British laws, the poor and destitute were funnelled into workhouses. The Irish workhouse system was designed for 100,000 people. During the famine, 900,000 people were jammed into these tightly packed, unsanitary hellholes, creating the perfect breeding ground for typhus, smallpox and cholera. Surprisingly, a lot of people froze to death 
In workhouses, you were forbidden to wear your own clothes. With the system massively overextended, uniforms couldn't be made quick enough. And instead of letting these people wear their own clothes, they were made to strip naked, even in the depths of winter. The amazing plan the government came up with for the workhouse overextension was people could remain outside of the workhouse walls and still receive their meagre rations. The only drawback was they had to prove they were truly starving. This was done through frequent checks. But the inspectors would come to you, right? Nope, you had to go to them. One account comes from Dulo Valley in County Mayo. A group of starving people were made to walk 11 miles for one such inspection in awful weather. Out of this group, seven people died en route, and another nine were officially listed as missing. Obviously, they were dead. Speaking of death by exposure, it's probably time to mention the evictions. Remember the cottiers, the rural peasants who lived in mud huts? Yeah, they were supposed to pay rent on those houses. Now, the first years of the famine, the rent was wavered. But as it dragged on, landowners began to evict the courtiers. Would they issue a notice? Oh no, they employed crowbar gangs. These gangs would enter the homes of courtiers and violently rip the people out of them, then burn the houses to the ground. These people were starving and in dire need beforehand. Now they had no homes, they simply died. You'd be forgiven to think that this was all due to greedy English landowners. Well, surprisingly, there were just as many Irish landowners doing the same, both Protestant and Catholic. All told, around half a million people were turfed out of their homes, further deepening the depressions. Yeah, so I hope you enjoyed the Irish famine. I mean, I've covered horrendous bouts of famine on this channel before, and what always shocks me is the inept government. How can they sit idly by while millions die? What is worse about this one is the fact that the government changed in the middle just to make it worse because a few rich people were losing money. As you can tell with my accent, I'm from the UK. And to think that retrospectively, this did not happen that long ago and it's in my own backyard. This isn't a new concept to me. The British Empire, like a lot of empires, was horrendous and we became rather good at wiping people off the map. But this is a couple of hundred miles away in a country that used to be part of my country, and not some far-flung place. Not that that makes it better, it's it just shocking, and it hits quite close to home. Another thing is that, even when these poor people reached America, they still lived in abject poverty, and were stuffed into ghettos and discriminated, so their life was only slightly better there. And the ones that came to England were treated less than rats, Liverpool, a city not far from where I live, was a big destination for the Irish. When they got here, they were battered with discrimination, to the point that places like Liverpool tried to deport them back to Ireland. How can you deport someone out of their own country? The more I researched and the more I realised why we are hated all over the world, especially by the Irish. I don't blame them, Jesus. Us English are hated by most of the British Isles. Another little tidbit of information is... It took till 2021 for the Irish population to reach 5 million again. That is 176 years later. And it's still 3 million short of pre-1845 levels. 
Anyway, if you liked the episode, please drop us a five-star review. If you think your friends and family may like this, share it with them. Links to TikTok, YouTube, Insta and the show email are below. If you've been listening for a while and not subscribed, please do. That way you never miss an episode. So with all that out the way, please join me for episode 15 and more Dark History.